Jeremiah 29, God's Word. There's some amazing and important names, and please forgive me if I fobble them. (laughs) This is an interesting passage. Please join me in the reading of God's Word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconoi and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Eliza, the son of Shephem, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zechariah, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It is said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exiles, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying you in my name i did not send them declares the lord for thus says the lord when 70 years are completed for babylon i will visit you and i will fulfill you my promise and bring you back to this place for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, there is something uh, really appropriate about this season for our relationship with you because so much of where we stand before you is as those who wait. Uh, We wait on you as you are doing work in our lives. Um, Your people have waited on you for centuries, first to see Christ come and then to see now, to see him come again. We wait on you in faith. And even now, we wait on you asking that as we um, spend time in your word, that you and your grace would speak to us and shape us and renew us. Lord, please awaken us to you in this time and draw us closer to you that we might hear your word and be changed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, I'd like to begin with a quote and um, see how you respond to it. There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind. I don't know if those words are familiar to you or not. They are from the sermon by Jonathan Edwards entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a sermon that is, is seen as one of the main kind of catalysts for the Great Awakening, the revival in the Northeast in the 18th century. It is perhaps the most or close to the most famous sermon, or should I say the most infamous of sermons, because uh, as famous as it is, it is also equally derided. Its, its central argument is simple. That before all of us stands a terrifying judgment of God, the wrath of God, and the only thing that keeps us from experiencing it is not our own cleverness or or our own hard work or our own good fortune. The only thing that keeps us from enduring internal terrifying judgment is the merciful hands of God. And this idea of judgment is just horribly offensive to many. And I wonder why that is. Is it because many people think this is not true? Or is it because many people just find it really unpleasant? I mean, because let's just be honest, it is not a pleasant thing to be thinking about God's anger towards us, God's judgment towards us, that we deserve to be judged by God. This is not pleasant stuff to hear. But yet it is throughout Scripture There is not a book of the Bible that goes by where we don't see some focus on the judgment of God or the anger of God. In fact, it seems like the Bible says for you to really understand his grace, you need also to be able to understand his judgment. The two have to go hand in hand together. And that's something I think we see pointedly in the passage that we have just heard passage that was just read was from Jeremiah, and I realize that Jeremiah is probably not, you know, people's number one or number two favorite book of the Bible, at least not most of us. It's a little bit unfamiliar to us. And so thankfully, even despite all of these strange names that Emily did a great job with, uh, we have something that kind of orients us early on. We see that what we just heard was a letter from God to his people. That's why it says in verse four, thus says the Lord. And what we see if we look at the details is this letter is written to people who are currently in Babylon and it's written by way of Jeremiah, a prophet who's currently living in Jerusalem. So it says in verse one, it's the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now behind that description lies quite a story. If you were with us a month ago, you might remember that we, found a, we saw a turning point in this story that we've been paying attention to, the story of God's redemption that, that fills the scriptures. And when we came to Elijah, we saw Elijah going to Mount Sinai, and there was this turning point where God was saying, enough. 
God's people had been consistently turning away from him, had been idolatrous, and God said, I am not done with my people, but I am done with the government. I'm done with the kings. Judgment is going to be upon them. And for subsequent generation after generation, prophet after prophet comes to God's people and warns them and says, we must repent. Unless we repent, we will be judged. Isaiah, the prophet, preaches that. Micah, who we heard just a couple weeks ago, that was his message. We need to change because otherwise judgment lies before us. And so here's the thing that the Bible says a lot more than we are willing to hear or to say. When people refuse to repent... When they won't change, even if they claim to be God's people, there is judgment that is before them. Now, God's people did not believe that was going to happen, but it's what we see in Scripture again and again. In fact, if we go way back to Mount Sinai, there's this moment where where God appears to Moses. He shows himself and he names himself. And, And here again what he says, he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you hear that? On one hand, there's this enormous emphasis, slow to anger, abounding in love, but notice it doesn't say never to anger. And what's more, at the end it says, I will be no, no means clearing the guilty. I am a God who is loving and compassionate and forgiving, but yet I am a God who will judge unrepentant sin. That's what he says. And so after generations upon generations of warning, judgment comes upon God's people. In 722 B.C., about a little more than 100 years after the prophet Elijah, The northern tribes, those ten tribes that are known as Israel, are decimated. The the superpower of the time, Assyria, comes and just wipes them out. There is no more ten tribes. The people are either killed or they are scattered throughout the known world. And Israel is no more. I mean, to try to get our minds around what that might have been like, imagine if an enemy of our country, I mean, for lack of a better one, let's just call it ISIS, somehow got nuclear capability and wiped out everything in the United States except the Midwest. That's what's happening right here. It is annihilation. It is terrible. And, Scripture is clear, it is ultimately from God's hand. It is his judgment upon an unrepentant people. Well, you have two tribes remaining, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, where they have the capital, Jerusalem. And there's this confidence that they have that even though this happened to the rest, it's not going to happen to them because they have God's great city. They have God's great king, the line of David. They have the temple. In fact, they sometimes will say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's not going to hurt us because of the temple of the Lord. Even after God's prophets again and again say, no, you need to repent as well. And so then 592 B.C. takes place. And, or sorry, 597, which is again about 100 years after Israel is wiped out. Now in 597, the new superpower, it's not any longer the Assyrians, it's now the Babylonians led by the mighty general Nebuchadnezzar. They besiege the city of Jerusalem and starve the people until eventually the king surrenders. 
And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar, as you know, kind of terms of surrender, takes most of the treasure from the temple and takes all of the brightest and best people from Jerusalem and moves them into his city, into, into Babylon. And if you can only imagine what the people of that time were, were likely thinking. This, by the way, is what Jeremiah is writing to. When I say that Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, he's writing to the people in Babylon, he's writing to the people who have just moved. They have just been taken. Again, if we try to give a kind of modern-day equivalent, imagine if ISIS now takes the city of Chicago and forces all of Chicago to get into planes and to live in Mosul under ISIS rule in, you know, the Middle East. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine this combination of, of grief because you've seen loved ones die in the battle, a fear because Christianity is not something that's accepted, of loss. You no longer have your home. You no longer have your possessions. And of questions, what is going on? What is God doing? And why is he doing this to us? Now, in 597 BC, there was still some hope that things would change. It's not going to be for another 10 years that Jerusalem is truly destroyed. In 10 years, Babylon would come again and would take the walls down, would burn the temple down to ashes so that nothing would be left. But here, 10 years before that, there is still this hope that maybe, maybe even though we're in a foreign land for a little while, maybe this is only a short-term thing. Maybe we will return, maybe in the next six months, maybe God is going to bring us back. And you have this battle between prophets, those who are truly of God and those who say they are prophets of God. It's kind of almost this duel about what is going to happen to God's people. So you have the prophet Jeremiah. You know, a few chapters earlier, we see that God tells Jeremiah to wear a yoke. You know, the things that oxen would wear for pulling a plow. He was supposed to walk around with this yoke, which is kind of, if you've read the prophets at all, kind of God's MO with prophets. He has them do really bizarre things. This is, you know, long before YouTube, God knows how to make things go viral, and that's kind of what's going on here. He is trying to make something that is so bizarre that people will notice and say, did you see what Jeremiah was wearing the other day? And when people come to Jeremiah, they say, why are you wearing this wooden yoke? He's saying, this is what God says. We are going to be wearing the yoke of Nineveh and not just, no, the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, and not just for a year or two, but for a long time. So another prophet, Hananiah, who calls himself a prophet, at a certain point he sees this yoke and he forcibly pulls it off of Jeremiah and he smashes it and he says, that's not true. You're coming back in two years. So you have these two vastly different messages, one of Jeremiah, one of this false prophet Hananiah. And imagine if you are in Babylon, which one you would rather listen to? One that holds out hope, this is a short-term thing, you'll be back to home in no time. And the other is saying, nope. It's not happening, 70 years at least. And so in that context, this is why that letter is written. God writes this letter in Jeremiah 29 to the people in exile saying, let me tell you what is truly going to happen. And so again, we see verse 4. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent, whom I have sent 
in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Do you hear that? Whom I have sent. The first thing that God wants to make clear is that what just happened to you is not an accident, and it's not my failure where someone kind of beat me. This is my choice. You are experiencing this at my hand because it's judgment. And then God goes on telling them that they need to get settled into their new home. He says, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, look forward to grandchildren. That's my summary, but that's essentially what he's saying. And consider the significance of this. You do not lay a foundation for a house. You do not plant a garden if you think you're leaving in a few months' time. He's saying you need to settle in for the long haul. You're not going anywhere for a very long time. You are going to be staying in this situation. And then he says something that would have been unthinkable. He says, seek the welfare of the city that you are in. That is Babylon is what he's talking about. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. Again, one more time, imagine this being a, a contemporary context and we are living in Mosul under ISIS rule. And God says, you need to try to make Mosul prosper. You need to make ISIS do, do well. Pray for them. Pray that they will prosper. Seek the good of the economy in this place that you are now held captive by. That's how they would have heard this. They're enemies that just destroyed them. They are now supposed to seek their prosperity. Why? It's not probably for the reason that many of us are thinking, because this verse sometimes is misapplied. Perhaps you've heard a sermon before on this verse that says, this verse is saying that we should seek urban renewal, that we should be loving the city and seek to redeem it, and that's what this verse is saying. Now let me say, that, that's a really important and true point. We are called to love our community. I mean, other, in other places, God sends Jonah to Nineveh saying, that great city, seek it. God has compassion on Nineveh. And the Good Samaritan tells us that we should be loving our neighbor and seeking our good. And when God loves the world and we are sent, we are sent to love the world. So that is absolutely true that we should be loving and longing for the good of the city in which we are. But that's not what this verse is talking about. See, in just a couple chapters earlier than this passage, God says, in 70 years, when I send you back, I'm going to wipe Babylon out. God does not have on his agenda right now urban renewal, where he's seeking to redeem the city. He's already planned to destroy it. And the motivation that he is giving here for why they should be seeking the good of Babylon is not altruistic love of, of show my love, show my glory by the way that you serve the city. No, it's a lot less altruistic than that. Verse 7, it says, do this for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, seek its welfare for your own interest because you're going to be there for a while. And the only, things will, the only way things will go okay for you is if Babylon is okay for you. See, the point here is, I think, clear in the following two verses. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, people like Hananiah, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. You know, every age there are teachers who like to say what we like to hear. There will always be teachers who will say, God is just a God only of forgiveness and love, 
And if you just think positively and optimistically, you will do well. That's what Hananiah is for this age. Take a positive attitude. And God says through Jeremiah, no, if you want to be my people, you need to receive my word. You need to receive my choice. And my choice right now for you is judgment. And you need to accept it. You need to accept the reality that you have wronged me so greatly and so consistently that this is the right response, that you are conquered, that you are exiled, that you are staying there for a long period of time so that if you're there right now, you are not going to be alive when you get back. Plan accordingly. Know that you're going to be there. Accept it. Don't put your hope in some fake rescue. Don't be in denial. Anyone who says otherwise is not speaking my words. They're just speaking lies. See, here's the thing. People don't like to think about God judging them. We don't like to think about that, do we? It's not pleasant. I don't think we mind the idea of God judging the bad guys. Like, we think it's really appropriate if there's someone who's been terribly unjust. Let's think of like an Adolf Hitler or someone. We know it is right for God to judge and say, that is not right. And we feel okay with that, but we don't like the idea that we're one of the wrongdoers. That we're the contributors of evil. That we ourselves are people who deserve God's anger and judgment. You know, I can't imagine ever being in a Christian bookstore and seeing on the bestsellers list, you're evil and God is going to judge you as one of the books. Because who would ever buy that? Even though it is a clear truth in Scripture, but we don't like to hear it. And the people in the day of Judah were no different. Two prophets come to them, one who's saying, it's all good. And the other is saying, no, it is not. Who do you think they're going to listen to? Problem is, of course, that the person that no one wants to listen to is the person who's telling the truth. And no amount of optimism will change the fact that they are stuck under enemy rule away from their homeland for a long time. Now, this is not all that God has to say to his weary people. There is grace in this passage. But it's important to notice that before God is saying the words of encouragement, the words of hope, he is making these words absolutely clear. Because there's a real sense throughout Scripture that for us to truly be able to hear God's loving yes, we first need to be able to hear his righteous no. So we hear the loving yes in the next verses. Look at verses 10 and 11. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I know that you're confused right now. I know that you're experiencing terror and agony and so much grief. And you might be thinking that my only purpose is to destroy you, but that is not true, my people. Know that my plans are still to fulfill those promises that I promised to Abraham so many centuries ago that I would bring back Eden, that I will bring my people in my place under my rule. Those are the plans. My plans are still to prosper you. 
If we ever wonder what God's will is, what he is wanting to do, we can go here as one of the clear points. God's purpose, he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He longs to redeem his people, to bring them into joy and prosperity. And he is saying that here, I know my plans for you, and they are for good. But notice what happened, that this happens after 70 years. And what's more, notice how it happens. Verses 12 through 14. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places that I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. God is going to prosper them and bring them back when? When they have turned to him with all their heart. When they call upon God, says, I will be right there. The moment you turn to me with all your heart and call upon me, I will be ready and I will bring you back. Now, how is that going to happen? How is it that this idolatrous people who has been so faithful, faithless, is going to turn and say, God, we need you. We call upon you. Bring us back. It's going to be because they've suffered 70 years of judgment. You know, sometimes we do something that is horribly wrong with horrible, catastrophic consequences. And when we do, the most natural thing to do is to be in denial. I mean, maybe you've seen it in yourself or you've seen it in others. When someone's made a big mistake, Sometimes they can like play the victim. They can say, yeah, I made the mistake, but it was because this person did this first. Or maybe we say that sometimes. Or even if we are willing to say, yeah, I did it, we'll say, but it wasn't that big of a deal. Or there really shouldn't, you, you really shouldn't be angry at me. This is not that big. We live in denial. We play the victim because, man, it is awfully tough for us to own when we have blown it. But you can only live in denial for so long. Either you hold on to the denial and just lose touch with reality, or eventually, over time, as you are living with the reality that you've brought upon yourself, you have to start owning the truth. And that's what's going here. As 70 years ago, the people of God slowly see this was us. We did this to ourselves. We have sinned against God. Never again. And so they call out to God. See, a true response to judgment, when it is truly owned and accepted, can be the kind of a, of a death to our ego, a, a death to ourself. And God says, when that happens, when you've come to an end of yourself, and you turn to me sincerely, I will be ready to pour my blessings upon you and I will prosper you. Here's what we see in these verses. God's plan to redeem the world are unchanged. We have seen this. It is a straight line from Abraham. Again and again, God is redeeming his people and that has not stopped just because of God's people's faithful, faithlessness. But what we see here in Jeremiah and what we see in the exile is the only way to get to where God wants to bring his people, the only way to get to redemption, to get back to Eden, is through judgment. That sin is so severe, so 
pervasive, so abhorrent, so wrong that it must be judged, it must be purged. God's people need to experience a kind of death before they can experience life. God's loving yes can only come as they accept and receive his righteous and loving no. Okay, if that's what it's saying, what what is this passage saying to us? Well, let me tell you, I think this passage confronts us with a question, and that is, have you and I accepted the reality of God's judgment? Or are we, like Hananiah, still living in denial? And maybe that question kind of confuses you because you think, wait a second, in the Old Testament, that was where we really see this theme of judgment. But the New Testament is so filled with grace and forgiveness. But that, that dichotomy actually isn't right. There is no place that is where we see God's judgment more clearly and more starkly than in the New Testament. Because it is in the New Testament that we see just how necessary and how awful God's judgment is upon us. And where do we see that? We see that at the cross. You know, a question that's often asked again and again is, why did Jesus have to die? And the answer as we come to study the scriptures is that Jesus had to die because he wanted to save us. And the way that he would save us is by taking our judgment upon himself, dying the death that we deserve so that we can be spared. Now think of the significance of that for just a moment. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chose for the Son of God to endure hell for us. If you think there was any other way to save us, any other way, If God could have just said, you know what, I'm a big God, I can handle this, no big deal, I will let it slide. If he could have, don't you think he would have, rather than choosing to send his own son to death? Of course he would. Jesus went to the cross because our sin is so grave, so life-denying, so heinous, that judgment absolutely has to take place. Putting this sin to death, sending it to hell, absolutely had to happen. And so Jesus became one of us. He took our place and endured God's judgment upon himself so that we can experience God's kindness and love forever. And here's where this is going this morning. For you truly to be a Christian, for you truly to be trusting in Christ, you need to accept this reality. You need to accept the reality that God's judgment needed to happen for you. That you are sinful, that the only way that you could be saved is through the Son of God dying on your behalf. Do you believe that? See, there's something really powerful that happens when we rather than living in denial and just thinking, oh, it's just a matter of, it's not that big of a deal and God's just forgiving, but realizing our sin is so grave that this is what it took. When that happens, that changes us. 
Let me tell you, the more that we recognize and accept the reality of God's judgment and the grace that lies beyond God's judgment, it will change us in at least three ways. First, it is going to humble us. I remember hearing or reading of an interview where a man by the name of Carl F.H. Henry, who was one of the great writers and theologians of evangelicalism in the 20th century, did a lot of good for the church. And, and one person asked him near the end of his life, how is it that you've done so much and you're remaining a man of integrity and you haven't kind of lost your head? And, and, and Carl F.H. Henry kind of responds almost like offended. And he says, how can there be any room for arrogance when one stands beside the cross? And that's right. Because what does the cross tell you? It says that no matter what you've done, no matter how generous you are, no matter how kind you are, all of these things might be true, but your sin was so grave that the Son of God needed to die so that you could be saved. What room is there for arrogance? It humbles us. And what's more, as we accept the reality that we are judged at the cross, it leads us to repentance. It must lead us to repentance if we truly accept it. Because God's condemnation at the cross is saying no, no to our former way of life. And if we accept it, we can't be saying yes. Uh, Paul in Galatians says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And what he's saying is the old self, the self of the ego, the self where I made my own choices, that self is done. It died on the cross. For me to accept the cross, I have to accept that that is no longer my way of living. And as we accept God's judgment, as we say, yes, God is right to have judged our former way of life, we must die to that and start living to the new way of life. It means repentance. It means turning away from us, doing what we want, and saying, Jesus, whatever you want, that's what I want. And as we accept judgment, not only does it bring us humility and repentance, but it also leads us into joy. Jonathan Edwards, the person I mentioned at the very beginning, calls it broken-hearted joy. Because as, as humbling as it is, think of the extent of God's love for us that he would go so far as giving his one and only son to rescue you. When you start realizing just how far God went to do that, you cannot ever fully imagine the depth of God's love and what he is willing to do to save you and care for you. What this tells us when we look at the cross is God's plans for us are not to harm us. They are to prosper you, to fulfill his promises to you, to do good to you. And if we can see that with clarity, how can that not bring us joy? In just a moment, we're going to be turning to the table. And the table, as we are eating and drinking in an almost physical fashion, we are taking in, we are accepting the reality both that we are judged, and yet God's purpose for us is good. His purpose for us is to love us. As we seek to prepare our hearts for this meal, I invite you to take a moment before God and confess. As we confess our sins, we are acknowledging God's righteous judgment even as we're clinging to our hope in his mercy. So let's spend a moment in quiet confession.
Father, right now I think of the old hymn that has this prayer, Jesus, keep me near the cross. And it concludes, uh, near the cross, be my glory ever. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we seek to find glory in our own works, in our own greatness. We seek to assert our own will apart from you rather than living in the reality of the cross and being kept near the cross and recognizing that our identity, our hope, and our glory are in Jesus and what he has done for us. So Father, we confess the pride that we still have, the selfishness that we still have. Father, you are renewing us, you are changing us, and we give you thanks for that, but we still acknowledge that we deserve your judgment. And so we pray that you would draw us nearer to the cross, that we would both be humbled, and that also now as we turn to the table and as we eat and drink, that we would see the reality of your love and your forgiveness and your grace towards us who truly do not deserve it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel. In Jeremiah, just a few chapters after the passage we were looking at, we read, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Friends, do you hear the good news? Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose coming we announce in this season, is our righteousness. In Christ, we are made right with God. Thanks be to God.